Uh, we have just finished a um, number of weeks in the book of Revelation. And it was a very helpful book um, for myself, and I hope it was for the congregation, as we reflected on um, the world in which we live. And in part, um, uh, part of that focus was on the battle in which we are engaged. Uh, the book of Revelation gives us a spiritual perspective on the physical realities which we find ourselves engaged in. And so we realized that uh, the dragon, Satan, the ancient serpent, uh, has been cast out of heaven, Revelation 12 tells us, but that he is really ticked off. He's angry. And in fact, he says that the, the heavens say, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And so we looked at some of the ways in which the wrath of Satan was poured out on the world, and certainly one of it was through the beast that comes from the sea, it really is a representative of kingdoms and political powers and intimidation. And we understand, some of us very well, how powerful intimidation can be as the, the pressures of um, loss of job or loss of life or suffering in some way can uh, really take their toll on us. We also saw, though, that Satan worked through the second beast, which was the beast that came from the land, and that that beast was much more into deception and in its toolkit was Babylon, or the great whore, the prostitute, and behind that was spiritual seduction. And so there is the outright intimidation, and there is the sort of the more um, uh, seductive ways that the devil tries to lure the world. And so we just looked at some of the broad ways in which um, that was taking place, not only in the world, but to the church. Out of that, and for a number of circumstances that have been whirling around in my head for the last couple of months, I've really been thinking that we need to talk a little bit about uh, the work of Satan in the lives of God's people, particularly and individually. I don't know if we spend enough time talking about this. I can't remember the last time I've actually thought about it in much depth, uh, certainly preached about it or talked about it. And so we're going to spend some days, uh, some weeks, um, and I'm not sure how many weeks on it, but some weeks uh, talking about the wiles of Satan or the strategies of Satan, or the schemes of Satan, or the snares of Satan. We get a glimpse of that, for instance, in the book of Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, which we likely will come back to at some point in the, in the coming weeks, but there's a little story there of a description of something that took place in the nation of Israel. We read there that Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my lord the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be the cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. Satan stood and incited David. 
And then we jump over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, which is really the basis for the next number of weeks, and we'll keep coming back to it. The Apostle Paul makes this amazing statement to the church there, and I've been asking myself, so would we understand what he's saying? Because he says there in verse 11, he says, These things have happened so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Again, are you familiar with the tactics and the strategies of Satan? I've got a number of books, uh, five that I'm working my way through, and all of them come from writers in the 1600s. They seem to have a grasp on these sorts of things. One book is The Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Another is The Wiles of Satan. Another is The Christian in Complete Armor. There's this list of this pastoral advice and encouragement to their congregations to understand the schemes of Satan so that we might not be outwitted by him, that we not by, might not be taken captive by him and ensnared to do his will. John Calvin wrote, All that scripture teaches concerning devils aims at arousing us to take precaution against their strategies and contrivances and also to make us equip ourselves with those weapons which are strong and powerful enough to vanquish even the most powerful foes. Another wrote, Christ, the scriptures, your hearts, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. Have you ever heard of a list like that? Christ, scripture, your heart, and Satan's strategies, the four prime areas of study for the Christian. Finally, another writer warned, Satan is full of devices and studies arts of circumvention by which he unweariedly seeks the irrevocable ruin of the souls of men. We have an enemy. We have an adversary who is smart and cunning and wily and wants to bring us harm. It was uh, Martin Luther who wrote that great hymn and that line in it, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And today what I simply want to do is get our biblical bearings on the context of our battle against Satan, how he tempts us individually. There's two main ways in which Satan comes against the people of God. One is through temptation, and the other is through accusation. We're only going to spend a number of weeks on temptation. One of these days we might spend some time on accusation. But that's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. So first of all, the scope of the battlefield. Some of you may be familiar with this, um, but I think it's helpful for us to see the, the, the scope at, on which you and I go out every day into battle as we walk with the Lord. I don't know if you've ever thought about the breadth of the battlefield. It helps sometimes to just be reminded of the nature of the battlefield and the size of it. There are three major battlefronts at which the Christian is confronted on a regular basis. The first is the world. We wage war against the world around us. Um, uh, John tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. James tells us, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Matthew tells us about the danger of 
the, the word of God being choked by the deceitfulness of riches. Romans tells us not to be conformed to the world. Matthew says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And so one of the prime reminders in this battle that we face is whoever loves the world is an enemy of God. So that's one of our battlefields. Another one is the flesh. It's one that most of us are really familiar with, the passions of the flesh. Before we were followers of Christ, we were given over wholly to the passions of the flesh, which indicated that we were then by nature, by our sinful nature, children of wrath. Romans says to us, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Peter tells us, abstain from the fleshly passions of of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Do you feel that war? I feel that war every day. This, this war that is waged inside of me that comes from the battle that I engage in against the flesh. We are to put to death the things of the flesh because the Bible tells us that if we continue to pursue them, those who pursue such things that are qualified under the passions of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then, of course, there's the devil. Peter tells us that we have an adversary, the devil, who roars around like a roar, who roams around like a roaring lion, seeking those who he might devour. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we ought to be aware, uh, we ought to learn how to stand so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Corinthians tells us that Satan comes to us as an angel of light. Timothy tells us that we ought to be aware of his snare so lest that we be taken captive to do his will. It could be that there's three then of these three battlefields and they're all independent or as I'm more inclined to think more and more that there is one enemy, Satan, the accuser, who comes at us through the world and through our flesh to pull us away from our love and our loyalty to God. Remember, the scripture says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's incredible that God has given him that kind of scope over the world in which we live. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Paul is saying that that's a negative thing, to follow the course of this world following the prince of the air. We followed Satan. He was our leader and the spirit of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience amongst whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh. There's all three of them, the world, the devil, and the flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind and were by nature children of wrath. Loved ones, that is the battlefield in which every single moment your children go out into, your grandchildren go out into, your spouse goes out into, your, your loved ones go out into, they go out into these battlefields every day. This is not child's play. And so that's the context. My, first, my second point is taking ser- Satan seriously? Question mark. I don't know how many of you were aware of this, and, and I'm not sure what was going through Christian Bale's mind when, it's an, when in his acceptance speech just a few weeks ago, after winning a Golden Globe Award for Best Actor, he gave an unexpected shout-out to what he said was his inspiration in portraying the powerful and uncharismatic 
former Vice President Dick Cheney. Thank you, Satan. I think, what is going on in his head? Does he have a clue at, what he, at who he is thanking? Is he just think it's some big joke that there is no real evil power, but let's just, you know, I'm on a grandstand, let's just make some silly statement? Do we take Satan seriously or not? What are we to make of a devil or of a Satan, of an ancient serpent, a deceiver? Is this just biblical fiction? Is this just something that Christians in the old days made up and Christians of the 21st century really have no place for and no time for? Well, what do the scriptures say? Well, the scriptures have a great deal to tell us. They tell us his names. And you can learn a lot about a person by the names that they have. One person wrote, Satan has three titles given to him by scripture, setting forth his malignity against the church of God. A dragon. I hate dragons. A dragon to denote his malice. A serpent. I hate serpents. To denote his subtlety. And a lion to denote his strength. These are not things that we ought to cuddle up against. These are things that ought to remind us of the power of our adversary. But he went on to say, none of these can stand before prayer. There are more. He's called the God of this age, the devil, our adversary, the accuser, Apollyon. Apollyon means destroyer. Do you understand that's one of the names of the devil? Apollyon, destroyer. He seeks to destroy. He hates God. He hates all those who love God. He hates everything that God has made. He hates our enjoyment of God. So he's always looking at ways to destroy God in our image or to destroy God in our mind or to destroy God in our thinking, to destroy the word of God, to destroy the character of God, to destroy the righteousness of God, to destroy our enjoyment of God, to destroy the fellowship of the people of God. He's Apollyon. But he's a created being. The Bible never explicitly tells us when Satan was created. Was it before the creation of the heavens and the earth? I tend to lean that way. I can be convinced of that. Job 38, 4-7 is the only text that moves me that way. But I, I tend to wonder, was Satan and his, or was, were all the angelic hosts created before God created the heavens and the earth? We can't be sure about that, but what we can be sure is at the end of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, after God looked out of everything that he had made, he declared it all very good, including all the angels of heaven that he had ever created, including everything that he had made in the universe and on the earth and in the sea and under the sea. He declared it very good. Then sometime after the creation of a perfect world and prior to his appearance in the Garden of Eden, Satan rebelled against God. Genesis tells us that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. There it is, very clearly. Satan is a created being. The Lord God made him. And it's the sum of heaven's worship. You know, what is the cumulative um, focus of worship in heaven? Well, it's this. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Satan falls into the category of all things. 
Satan falls into the category of by your will it was created. And so Satan is a created being. Scripture explicitly talks about a number of rebellions. There's a first rebellion, which uh, I wonder if this one took place sometime between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3, where in Jude, Jude tells us the angels did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Peter describes the same event this way. He says, God did not spare the angels when they sinned. God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to Tartuus, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. There was a time in which Satan and his followers overstepped the boundaries that God had created them for. And for their treason, for their sin, God punished them and banished them from heaven to earth. It's symbolic language, I believe conveys the, the, uh, at least to us the idea that the angels who sinned are now restrained in some way because of that sin and that God has limited the sphere of their operation. But there was also a rebellion in heaven after the ascension of Jesus. It's a reference to Revelation chapter 12 where war arose in heaven. And we know that the, 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 the chatty snake in the garden is the same snake that appears in Revelation chapter 12 because he's there called the ancient serpent. And so the ancient serpent in Revelation 12 is the same chatty snake that shows up in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. And it says he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So he's a created being. He sinned and rebelled against God. He's not omniscient, omnipresent, nor omnipotent. In other words, he is not a God. He is not equal to God. He does not know all things. He is not all powerful. He cannot be in more than one place, one place at this, two, he can't be in two places at the same time. Maybe that's a better way to put it. He's a liar and a murderer. That's what John tells us about him is, is nature, by nature he is a liar. That's why I think lying is one of the things that parents ought to be so particular about getting out of their kids at a young age and work on it. Truth-telling, truth-telling, truth-telling. Don't let little lies go. Don't let little things kind of slip by that aren't true. Call them on it again and again and again. By nature, he is a liar. He's the father of lies, the Bible tells us. And he is a murderer. We should not be like Cain, the writer of John, or John tells us, who was, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil as his brothers were righteous. Satan also has considerable resources and authority. I've already mentioned that John tells us the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's substantial authority. Remember the temptations of Jesus. We might have time to get to them. One of the temptations, Satan takes Jesus up on a high place and in a, in, a, in a moment he flashes all the kingdoms of the world. And he says to him, if you will but bow down and worship me, I will give you all of this. I don't understand it all, but God has given Satan considerable reign. It's within limits, but he has given him considerable power and authority. He's able to inflict harm. Jesus one day healed a woman on the 
Lord's Day or on the, on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees went after him for it. And he says, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And then Jesus went about all over Galilee and Nazareth in the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Just read Job 1 and 2. We've mentioned that before. And look at the power of Satan within the boundaries that God said to him. But God basically said, you can do anything you want, but don't touch his body. And you see how he commanded lightning. You see how he commanded armies. And then he says, okay, you can do anything you want, but don't kill Job. And so he inflicted boils on him. But his operation is only within the extent that God allows him. God is sovereign over Satan. God created Satan. And evidently, God sees the ongoing role of Satan as essential for his purposes in the world, since in a moment, if God willed, he could crush Satan. And in fact, we know that at the end of this age that he will cast Satan forever into the lake of fire and sulfur. One man wrote, The goodness of God makes the devil a polisher while he intends it to be a destroyer. In other words, that's like Joseph's words to his brother. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Another person wrote, Indeed, God's wisdom rules over Satan's schemes so that this devil accomplishes God's plans. William Gurnall wrote, God sets the devil to catch the devil and lays, as it were, his own counsels under Satan's wings and makes him hatch them. In other words, God uses Satan to bring about his purposes. Finally, he's defeated and doomed. I hope that we understand that. I, this is something that you've got to have in your head as we go through this over the next number of weeks. He's been thrown out of heaven. There's a doom of the eternal lake of fire waiting for him. John tells us that the, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And through his death and his resurrection, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And it already said at the end of this age that the devil who has deceived them will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. How do I know Satan is real? You might say, show me, Paul, prove it to me. Well, this would be my response. It would go something like this. First of all, I have come to believe that the Bible is true. I have come over the years to find that I don't find contradictions. I find that everything that God says comes to pass. There's enough prophecy that has been fulfilled. There is enough wisdom in it that is beyond my understanding that makes sense that I come now to believe that every single word in that Bible that we have is God's word to us, is inspired word. And so when the Bible tells me that there is a being called Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent, the accuser, I choose to believe the Bible. Secondly, I've come to realize that Satan is the best explanation for the state of the world in which we live. As I look around me and I see the proliferation of lies and murder and hate, as I see human destruction on such massive scales, as I look around the world and I see such hostility towards God and to his people, I, I, it fits the biblical description of what God says Satan is about. And so I say, well, this is what's happening. This is what the Bible says causes it, so I must believe in the cause of what's happening. I have come to see that 
Human explanations alone for human troubles don't explain everything that I see in humankind. When I see inescapable bondage and oppression, when I see lives that are ruined that exceed human abilities to combat or fix, when I see people possessed by a power and an influence that has no medical explanation, I conclude that there is a supernatural power in this world that fits the biblical description of Satan. When I'm made aware of movies and books that describe supernatural powers and malevolent powers that seem unlikely to be the fruit of human imagination alone, then I accept the biblical account of a real, evil, powerful, malevolent being, Satan, the great dragon who inspires those. And when I face personal battles that scare me, when the impulses behind my actions betray my desires, when my own thoughts and self-talk scare me, I affirm the biblical account that there is a Satan. So taking Satan seriously, you bet I do. And finally, taking Satan seriously, exclamation mark. It's going to be a little overwhelming, but I want to just pour into us a little bit of scripture so that as we begin to take it bit by bit over the next number of weeks, we have this larger context. Peter gives us a serious call to vigilance. He says, be sober-minded. It's the opposite of being drunk. It's the opposite of fuzzy thinking. Be sober-minded. Give your head a shake. Think clearly. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he might devour. I don't think there's a person in this room who can't in a moment call into their head an image of a prowling lion that they've watched in National Geographic or, or some show about wildlife and you can visualize a lion stalking its prey, running after its prey, maybe catching its prey and then maybe devouring its prey. It's an image that would have been very familiar to those in the first century and earlier. And it's an image that the Word of God uses to help us get a grip on how dangerous and how meaningful we ought to take this reality to be sober and watch for the Satan for Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you might be able to stand against the schemes or the tactics or the wiles of the devil. Wiles is not a word that we use a lot. I remember watching Wiley Coyote a lot, and he was always scheming to get the roadrunner. But it seems to imply, amongst other things, attacks from behind. Do you ever feel like Satan sneaks up on you and takes you by surprise? Do you ever feel like you've been uh, waylaid by some subtle trick? Do you ever feel like you've been ambushed by sinning? You think, where did that come from? Where did that thought come from? Where did that act come from? Where did that opportunity come from? Satan's strategy is to catch us unaware. Wiles, these are troubles that come to us in the course of our everyday life. We're not talking here about, well, special occasions when I'm really sort of in a dark place, um, you know, where, where, you know, if I only go on vacation. We're talking about the schemes of the devil that confront us in our day-to-day -day life. 
as we go about uh, raising our kids, as we go about driving to work, as we go about our classes at school, as we go about uh, our sports life, all of those things. In the day-to-day life, Satan schemes against us. Wiles are purposefully and craftily set to take the greatest advantage of them. And have you ever noticed in your life that sometimes the subtle is considerably more effective than an in-your-face attack? Satan's powerful. There's a parable of the sower and the seed, and the seed remembers the word of God and goes out and scatters the seed, and one of the places the seed lands is on the rocky ground, and the birds come and immediately snatch it away. Do you remember what Jesus' description of that is? Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. I pray it often after Sundays. God, don't allow Satan to snatch the word of God away from somebody's heart today. Because I know that some of you, the moment you leave here, your mind is somewhere else. That Satan has distracted you, that Satan has focused you somewhere else, and that you have, the last thing you're thinking about is anything that we might have sung or prayed or that might have been preached. Satan has the ability to snatch away that word. One of the places where Satan is so brutal is with new Christians. I mean, Satan tempts us all through his life. Some of the most brutal, brutal temptations of Satan are on our deathbeds. But all through our life, Satan comes at us just with different strategies and tactics. He disguises himself as an angel of life. He disguises himself. He comes to a Christian disguised as a friend, a brother, in other words. Satan has servants who profess enough truth to join a church and from inside teach what Paul calls doctrines of demons. This is perhaps one person wrote the most dangerous to the saints when he appears in the mantle of a prophet and silver plates his corroded tongue with fair-sounding language. The books that we read, the podcasts that we watch, those that lure us through false teaching. Paul prays that we might come to our senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do as well. Here it is again, this come to your senses. This is about clear thinking. I, I often have told you, you know, when you come to church, don't check your minds out at the door. We're not here about indoctrination. We're here for you to challenge me, to challenge one another, to challenge the Word of God, to think it through, to have a clear head. And one of the places that we need a clear head is when it comes to thinking about the snares of the devil. This word, after being captured, is a military word, which means being taken alive. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that talks about soldiers taken alive in a war or birds that are snared alive in a fowler's net. Satan sets snares to capture us alive so that we might do his will. And the one that we're going to open up for weeks to come is this one from 2 Corinthians 2.11. Paul is concerned that we not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. For we are not ignorant of his designs. There's no neutrality in this war. There's nobody that can sit on the fence. There's nobody that can sort of take a holiday from the Christian life. Either you are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
or we are resisting him. Resist him firm in your faith. And so I want you in the coming weeks, and you might even start today. Some of the books that I've been reading already, they, one of them lists 21 strategies of the devil. Another lists 12 strategies of the devil. Another lists seven strategies of the devil. Can you write some strategies of the devil down? Maybe take a notepad this week and say, ah, this is one of the ways that Satan tries to trip me up. And start keeping a list. Start informing yourself and becoming aware as you read through Scripture of the means that Satan uses to trip us up. We're to put on the whole armor of God so that what we might be able to stand. God has given us everything that we need to stand. He's conquered the devil through Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. And now he's given us an armor that we can put on so that we might stand in the evil day against the wicked one. He warns us, be sober-minded and watchful so that you might not be devoured. And he encourages us to acquaint ourselves regarding his ways so that we are not ignorant of his designs. And I hope there's a scripture that you'll commit to memory, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. For no temptation has overtaken you, but such that is common to man. Never think that the temptation that you're facing is unique to you. That's another trick of the devil. Realize that temptation that we experience is common to man. So no temptation has overtaken you, that is, but that is common to man. And with, and oh man, see, it's gone from my head. Ah, this is it. And God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Do you believe that? He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with every temptation, will provide a way out. And so it's my hope and prayer that as we take this journey, as we acquaint ourselves with the wiles and the schemes and the strategies and the tactics of our adversary, that we will recognize the way out that God has provided through every one of those tactics and strategies and that we might stand with Christ. As the psalmist wrote, and might it be our battle cry, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for battle. May God train us for battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. Father, thank you for your word today. I don't know if it's a cheery word, Father, but it's a necessary word. It's the reality in which every one of us live every moment of our lives. And it does no good for us to stick our heads in the sand. And so, Father, help us to stand. Help us to be sober. Help us to be watchful. Help us to be confident in Christ's victory over the evil one. And to know that he has no power over us any longer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.